0: Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our
1: debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter.
0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all very much for coming. Lovely to see such a big crowd here tonight. My name's Hannah Kay, and I'd like to welcome you all on behalf of Intelligence Squared. Tonight, we're delighted to welcome this country's two most talented science communicators, Brian Cox and Alice Roberts. Alice is an anatomist and anthropologist, and she's Professor of Engagement with Science at Birmingham University. Her latest book is called The Incredible Unlikeliness of Being, Evolution and the Making of Us. Now, I first came across Brian Cox way back in 2007, before he was famous. Brian was already on his journey to media stardom through programmes like the BBC Two's Wonder Series. Of course, Brian also has a day job. He's a professor at Manchester University and a researcher on the Large Hadron Collider project at CERN in Switzerland. And his latest book is called Human Universe. It's a tie-in with his latest BBC TV series. And both authors' books, that they're assigned copies... Will be on sale later on in the foyer. And now, please, would you give a very warm welcome to our two speakers tonight, Brian Cox and Alice Roberts. Thank you very much.
2: Hello. Good evening, everybody. Um, So, we thought that we'd be quite freeform this evening. so the plan is that we're, we're going to talk to each other for about five or ten minutes or so, and then we'll take some questions, and then we'll talk for another five or ten minutes and take some more questions and see how it goes, if that's all right with you. Is okay? <laughs> so, um, and we thought we'd start by just giving a, a brief introduction to, to our research, to our science, which is what you, you don't see on, on television, but what, what we're doing in our in day jobs, as it were. So... Um, I suppose I should invite Alice to
1: start. So my research is, um, is very focused on the skeleton. It's focused on bones. Um, for some reason, I've always been interested in ancient bones. And I originally trained as a medic, as a medical doctor, and then got sidetracked into anatomy and once that had happened, it was almost inevitable that I was going to start looking at bones um, because I'd been fascinated by them since I was a child. And the world of the skeleton gives us this incredible insight into, uh, into evolution because most of the fragments of, of ancestors that we have um, are skeletal fragments because that's what fossilizes. And um, we can also get really good ideas about how animals move and how they adapt to their environments looking at their skeletons and then trying to reconstruct all of the soft tissue around that Um, so my research is 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 i suppose in a very narrow way about the human skeleton in a broader way it's about human evolution it's about comparative anatomy comparing ourselves with with other animals um, in order to actually learn more about ourselves
2: I'm going to break the rule, actually, because I've got a question <laughs> already. <laughs> so, the, so, the, so the earliest fossils, they're the they're, Cambrian explosion time, or just before? It's about what there, are some,
1: there are some even earlier ones, but most of the good fossils we have date to around then when you actually start to get organisms with, with hard body parts. Um, and we do have some, there are some beautiful fossils now of, of things with soft body parts, which are really important for, for looking at the, the, the early History of life on the planet.
2: Yeah. So what are they? They're the things about 600 million years ago, aren't they? What are they called? The Ed?
1: ed Is it Edia? Ediacaran. Ediacaran. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Ghost-like fossils. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah. And they're, they're they're spongy type things, aren't they? That you find.
1: Yes, uh, uh, strange body forms, um, and, and in the Cambrian explosion, we have a we have a whole range of really bizarre-looking animals, very strange body forms, which um, obviously led to evolutionary dead ends, and we d- we don't have anything like that anymore. But they have wonderful names like Hallucigenia, They're very very odd-looking organisms. Yeah.
2: Okay so so my very briefly my research is, as was mentioned in, in the introduction I'm a particle physicist I started though working in astroparticle physics so that the first bit of research I did was on uh, supernova neutrinos so neutrinos are particles three of the 12 particles of matter Um, Perhaps unfamiliar, but they carry 99% of the energy of a supernova explosion. Uh, They're intimately involved in nuclear fusion in the sun. There are something like 60 billion per centimetre squared per second passing through your head now from the sun, from the nuclear reactions in the sun. They, They interact very weakly with normal matter, and so it's very difficult to detect them, fortunately for us, because there's a rain of them. Uh, falling down on us, and most of them pass straight through the Earth, unimpeded. So I worked on building detectors to detect those things. Then I started working on electron-proton collisions, uh, an accelerator called DAISY in Hamburg. Uh, Then I moved on to proton-antiproton collisions in Chicago, an accelerator called Fermilab, and now I work on proton-proton collisions at the Large Hadron Collider at the LHC. Um, The main result, as most of you I suspect will know, is that we found this uh, new particle, a completely new fundamental particle called the Higgs particle, um, whose job it is to give mass to everything else in the universe. So we think that less than a billionth of a second after the Big Bang or so, um, empty space uh, stopped being empty. The, the, The lowest energy configuration, if you like, of emptiness is not to be empty, but it's to be filled with Higgs particles, or a Higgs field, if you prefer that language. So the idea is that the Higgs condensed out into the vacuum of space sometime less than a billionth of a second after the Big Bang. It's been there ever since, and your particles now, the particles that make up your body, at the most fundamental level, so let's say the electrons and the atoms in your body, get their mass because they interact with this condensate that permeates the universe. So that's um, what I've been working on for a while. Uh, And my last paper was esoterically, I published it this year, was on cause and effect in quantum theory and how it is that quantum theory appears to be a strange delocalized theory where you can do things over here and things change seemingly instantly at very large distances, light years, hundreds of light years away, and yet, we still have a theory that behaves sensibly, but that's probably beyond this um, forum to discuss. Because it's just allowed us scribble.
1: So some of your research, or in fact, very fundamentally, your research is about the the beginning of everything, the beginning of the beginning of the universe, and then and then what you've been exploring more recently with your recent series and your recent book um, brings us all the way to us um, and looks at the the probability of us us being here at all. Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, the Human Universe, actually, is, is the most... Um, I think it's the most heavily influenced series that I've made by by Cosmos. It's, it's, I grew up with Cosmos. I've said it many times. I think Carl Sagan is certainly one of my heroes. And Cosmos, I think, is, for me, the greatest science series that's ever been made. Brian, 30, do you not uh, find
1: him just a little bit
0: creepy?
2: I, we, we've had this debate. <laughs> we, we've had, we had this argument. Um, but when we last had this argument about a month ago, Brian Blessed was involved as well, which was a. <laughs> so,
3: what are you talking about?
2: <laughs> Actually, <yeah. laughs> I'm not going to start doing Brian uh, Blessed impressions. <laughs> I want to go to Mars. You no, are not, <laughs> right. I am.
0: Aren't I?
2: Um, so, but anyway, um, the reason, the, the thing that I found most, I think, in, enticing about Cosmos when I saw it, I, I was 12 years old when it was broadcast is that it was, it was an astronomy series and a cosmology series. Now I was interested in astronomy. But it, it, it used the discoveries of astronomy and cosmology and, and physics in general, science in general, to speak about us. It was, a, it was an act of emotional engagement as well as just engagement with scientific ideas. And so I, I think that the questions such as if... Well, we know that there are 350 billion galaxies in the observable universe, so that's the bit that we can see. And we know that the universe extends beyond that bubble, which is currently about 90 billion light-years across or so. So we know it extends beyond that. Uh, we, you can debate, and we don't know whether it's infinite in extent. It might be. And so that, that to me, immediately raises questions about us. What is our place? In Obviously, physically... It, it we're irrelevant. But are, are we really irrelevant? Which I think goes back to, to, to your work. It's a, what, how do you... Is, is it even a scientific question to put a value on the, on the human race, on, on, on the existence of humans? How likely are we to exist? I mean, how, your book is called The Incredible Unlikeliness of Being... I suppose for an individual, we wrestle with this in the human universe. For any individual, it seems incredibly unlikely that an individual will exist. Yeah, so it does
1: yeah. I, mean, I kind of start off with that premise in the book, because if you if you think about it, if you think about the the unlikeliness of your own existence and the, and the chance of you not being here, the chance of you not being here is far greater than the chance of you being here. Um, even Even by the time your mother had met your father, the chances of you being here are still infinitesimally small because um, it was that one egg and it was that one sperm and it was also in fact not just that one egg and one sperm but it was the environment in your mother's womb at that time as well interacting with um, that newly formed individual the DNA from your from your mother and your father so the the chances of you being here is is really quite tiny. That's interesting
2: actually what you said so the environment in the in the womb how does... That, what does that affect, given that you've got this fertilized egg? Is it not, are you not determined from that point?
1: No, um, and, and I think increasingly in biology, we're understanding that you, you cannot... We always have this question in our minds of you know, how much of our personalities, for instance, are nature versus nurture. The two of them are inextricably intertwined. Um, DNA doesn't actually make any sense without the environment it's in. So it's always going to be responding um, to the environment from the from the very moment that you you're conceived.
2: So so in in a way then so we're a representation of a subset of the data contained in the in the in the genome in in the DNA at that point, and which bits get expressed can result in from environmental pressures in in the womb.
1: Yes, because I mean we know that um, even even identical twins are not. Completely identical. Well, of course, yeah. And they have—they're um, genetically identical, but they're not phenotypically identical. So there's something else going on right from the very beginning. It's—it's
2: it's, it's interesting actually, because one of one of the things that I've become interested in recently, which you would have seen in in Human Universe, because these programs tend to be—yours uh, are the same, I think—they tend to be what interests you at the time, don't you? Tend mm. to just—I've just got really into this, so let's film that. And one of the things I got interested in was inflationary cosmology which in its most extreme form is, runs almost parallel. The same issues apply, but not to, to people, but to universes. So, so in these theories, you, you get each time a universe is born, so there's, there's a Big Bang... Uh, which is connected to something else, some other multiverse where there are other universes. And you can shuffle the the laws of nature in these universes. You can shuffle the physical constant. So you get a different... There's presumably some overarching physical theory, some, some laws of nature that we don't yet know. And the ones that we see, the strength of gravity, the mass of the electron, and all those fundamental numbers, uh, are actually emergent properties that emerge quite by chance, probably, in, in the production of the universe. So in that sense, universes themselves are like people. Each one is different, except that there may be an infinite number of them, which means, actually, that our existence is inevitable. So it's, so, 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 the, so the unlikeliness of being is, is, is in a sense, a local statement. I mean, it's as if you say, if there were an infinite number of humans, then every every possible human would exist. I mean, it's a, A mathematical statement, I suppose.
1: So, from a philosophical point of view, Brian, because I am a humble, slightly evolved ape, from a philosophical point of view, do you actually believe there are an infinite number of universes with an infinite variety of things going on in them? Because does that mean that there's another universe somewhere where we're doing exactly the same thing tonight, exactly the same people are out there in the audience, but I'm sitting on that side and you're sitting on this side?
2: I became a biologist. Well, no, but I mean, apart from that, no.
1: <laughs> That's so unlikely. Yeah. Um, you, well, yeah, I mean, it's not a question
2: of, I suppose we'll get into it, it's not a question of belief. I know you said that you were accosted by someone outside who said, do you believe in evolution? You go, well, I believe. In, in, you know, it's not a thing you believe in, it's just whatever happened happened. So what science is, is a search for the... Well, it's a search for what, what happened. It's the observation of nature. And the, the reason we've been... These multiverse theories are, are, are very fashionable at the moment. There are several reasons. But one of them is that our, our best theory, of the, which explains something called the cosmic microwave background, which is the oldest light in the universe. So just to rewind a bit, what, 380,000 years after the Big Bang then atoms formed. The universe had cooled such that sufficiently for electrons to go into orbits around the atomic nuclei, mainly hydrogen and helium, that were present in the universe. The universe became transparent at that point, very quickly, it's something called recombination, it's called where the the atoms formed. And that light, because the universe became transparent, the light from that universe has been traveling through the universe ever since, and we can take photographs of it, which we, we do. It's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. And that has properties, it has fluctuations in it. It has, they're not completely random fluctuations. They have a characteristic size on the sky. The the, the fluctuations are about one part in 100,000 differences in the wavelength of the light. So there are numbers in there that describe it. And they have to be explained by any theory that explains what happened before that time. And the best explanation we have is that there was, there was a period of time before the Big Bang where you define the Big Bang as the time when our universe was very hot and very dense. That was 13.8 billion years ago. Before that, uh, we have a time in our theories where the universe was cold, in fact, but expanding exponentially fast. And then it stopped doing that. that. that in stopping, the universe heated up. And you get the Big Bang. And those theories are the best predictors by far of the data that we see. So, now, those theories almost naturally lead to these so-called multiverse ideas through a very simple argument. It's just that, well, why would this exponential expansion of space and time before the Big Bang all stop at once? And it's almost... That it's just well, you no, know, it seems to stop in little patches and make lots of universes, and th- so so that's that's almost textbook. Certainly, the, the inflation bit, the before the Big Bang bit, is, is what we teach undergraduates. So it's textbook. Um, the, the the bit where you extend it to more than one Big Bang is broadly accepted but debatable. But that so that's where it's coming from. It's coming from it's coming from data and evidence and theory. So it's not it's not a philosophical position.
1: So if we...
2: I don't mind philosophers. I didn't mean... It came out badly that, didn't it?
1: So if we just rein it in a bit and think about just our universe and what's going on in this universe, how many um, galaxies are there where there are Earth-like planets that could possibly sustain life as we know it?
2: So so we've made a measurement of... A statistical measurement of the number of Earth-like planets in the Milky Way. So in the Milky Way galaxy, in our galaxy, there are of order 200 billion stars. And we think around one in 10 of them has an Earth-like planet, in the sense that it's a rocky planet, uh, close enough to the star that that, that it could have liquid water on its surface, but not too close that it would boil away. So we think about 20 billion uh, Earth-like planets, potentially 20 billion in the Milky Way galaxy. So that's then, in our
1: close neighbourhood.
2: That's in our 200 billion, uh, yeah, 100,000 light years across little corner. And then there are three, 350 billion galaxies in the observable universe. That's a, it's a st- statistical statement. We've detected just under 2,000 planets beyond the solar system, so confirmed discoveries. And of those, we have a number that we think could be rocky planets, and that's how you, you do the sums, basically. So it's a lot potential homes for life which then I, I, before I go to before we ask for few questions the one question though is how likely do you think it is that life emerges on a world let's say you've got a world with liquid water which is relatively stable so how likely is life to spontaneously emerge in that world
1: I think as long as you've got some um fundamental um elements there for, for life to form, and, and I suppose these these would include um, things like um, carbon and, and, and phosphorus and and oxygen um, and various others. Um, I actually think it 's quite likely i think it is quite likely now um, what i don 't think is likely is that complex life emerges, so I think that I think that simple life emerging is is actually quite likely and likely to just happen because Um, we've done experiments um, looking at um, creating organic chemicals from inorganic chemicals, and we know that that happens. And we also know that these natural experiments are actually happening... um, on Earth right now at the bottom of the sea in these deep-sea vents where there are mm. lots and lots of almost tiny test tubes where experiments are going on all the time, um, mixing different types of chemicals together um, in a heated environment. And we, and we think at the moment that that's probably the most likely um, origin for, for life on this planet. Um, and, it's, and it's not a terribly um, complex setup, so I can imagine that happening on other planets.
2: Well, I suppose the... the so, so one piece of evidence, I suppose, is that it seemed to have emerged almost as soon as it could on Earth, at least 3.8 billion years yes. ago. Yes,
1: soon after what I believe is called the late heavy bombardment, because mm. yeah. <laughs> nothing can survive water that. Comes back. <laughs> well,
2: that's one of the questions, actually. One of the things the Rosetta probe is trying to do is trying to look at the water on that, on that comet to see if it's the same. it has the same characteristics, the same mixture of isotopes, if you know that language, of, so, so the same composition that the water on Earth has. Because the, the most, probably the most widely accepted theory is that the Earth was very hot uh, when it was formed about 4.54 billion years ago, and so the water would have been driven off. Um, so you wouldn't have much water in the inner solar system. You find lots of water in the outer solar system, and then it looks like it came back in again. And the question is, how much of the Earth's oceans perhaps survived below the surface and bubbled back up, or perhaps were delivered by cometary impacts, you know, way four billion years ago or so. And um, so that's one of the open questions. But what we those, got water, could these
1: comets even have brought life as well? I mean, that's a. I mean, this is another, another thing that question. the Rosetta
2: mission and the Philae lander is, is trying to look for organic molecules, see how complex they are. You know, we, we find that, oh, amino acids. Certainly out there in space, we know that there are complex organic molecules. But the question is, I suppose, how did those become replicators? So we,
1: should we, should <laughs> we take some <laughs> questions, we then should, we'll move we? on to replicators?
2: So, well, there, was a, there was a, there's a hand that went up very quickly there. It's either <laughs> a great sign, that, or an aggressive move, which is... <laughs> <We should, laughs> But we we'll have got it's the really gentleman there with
1: the t- uh, so.
4: There we go. Good evening. Um, you're very close to the House of Commons here. Have you got any thoughts on the interaction between politics and science and science and politics? Is science politically neutral?
2: I, Alice could start. I've got lots, so many thoughts. <laughs> I could speak... <laughs> I think
1: think scientists try um, their hardest to be politically neutral. I think it's very difficult to say, is science politically neutral? Because science is carried out by scientists. And individuals, by their very nature, are not politically neutral. But we try very hard to be very, very objective. I think that in terms of the relationship between um, science and politics, what I would like to see is politicians looking at the scientific evidence and taking that into account, I know that politicians, when they're forming their policies, are obviously not just forming those policies on the basis of scientific evidence, but on the basis of lots of other things as well, on the basis of what they think people in a democracy want, on the basis of what they think is going to win them the next election, on the basis of lots of other things other than that scientific evidence. But what I would really like them to do is be honest about that. So, to be honest when they are formulating a policy, um, which is quite clearly to the scientists not following the scientific evidence, but they pretend it is. Because in doing that, they really muddy the waters, I think.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, the, the thing about science is never political for, for long. So, even if there are, um, if, if you're, you think what science is, it's the study of nature. And the. I will say the scientific method. I'm aware that there are various historians of science who will argue, but essentially what you're saying is that is that you, you, you formulate a theory, you look at nature, you check your theory. If your predictions disagree with the observations, they're wrong. And if they don't disagree, they're not necessarily wrong. But all theories are temporary. And that's very important, actually. the, the great We were talking, actually, just before... Oh, were we talking about Bronowski? No, we weren't. Someone else was talking about Bronowski. <laughs> was that great moment in, in The Ascent of Man when Bronowski is in uh, Auschwitz and he goes down on his mm. knees in Auschwitz. And, and the point he makes is that is that we are, we are human Because we're fallible, we're fallible, and science is human because it's fallible. It's the only discipline that acknowledges its own fallibility and is actually built on its own fallibility. So that's the point about science. That's why science is successful, and why ultimately, even if you are, even if you're political briefly in your science, we could go back to to Galileo maybe and the the struggles there and 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 perhaps people were not quite straightforward about what they were thinking and saying because of the pressures on them. But but it won't last long because nature is there and nature is the gold standard against which theories are judged. So you could delay it a little bit. But I don't think that if you're talking about the the, the grand sweep of science, it can't be political for long. That's the, the power of it, I think.
1: Should we take another question? Is there anybody um, over this side? Yes, there's a, um, a lady near the front there, I think in a grey top. Difficult to see.
4: Hi, good evening. Um, I'm very happy to be here, but my question is, what, is, what was before the Big Bang? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I think, is there any clue where you, they found the time, the energy, the
0: space. What was before that?
2: It's actually an easier question to answer now than it was um, 20 years ago. Because, as as I mentioned, in in the 80s, this theory, the theory of inflation, appeared, which has gained ground and is now the most widely accepted theory of what happened before the Big Bang. So the, the, the Big Bang is defined as the time when the universe was very hot and very dense, and it's been expanding ever since, and that's the measurement we make. So we have a measurement which is the universe is 13.798 plus or minus 0.035 billion years old. <laughs> that's what we measured. But that measurement is the, is the point, uh, the, the, this point when it was very hot and very dense. Um, before that, we're now almost certain that it was expanding exponentially. So space time was expanding exponentially for faster than the speed of light. It is exponential expansion, and we don't know when that started. Um, there's a debate about whether it could have been going on forever or not. Um, th- there may be technical reasons that it couldn't. Um, so, you, if, you, if you want to Google it, there are things called geodesic completeness and all sorts of very technical arguments in general relativity. But it's not—it's not accepted. There's no consensus. But it, it, so, so we can say—I could say that. Most cosmologists will say there was a time before the Big Bang when the universe was expanding exponentially fast. Whether that was going on forever is debatable, but it's interesting. Going back to the statement, we were talking about politics and science, and how politics can sometimes slow down science. So Giordano Bruno, famously in 1600, was burnt at the stake, um, most probably because he asserted that the universe was eternal, and, of, of course, that was, that was challenging. It wasn't because he was a supporter of Copernicus, really. Copernicus was not the, the, the sun-centered universe. That was not heretical at the time. But what was heretical was asserting an eternal universe because then you are in interest in theological territory with regards to a creator. What does it mean to be a creator of a universe that's eternal and has been around forever? Is this such a thing necessary? It's interesting, actually, because Leibniz is... Uh, very sound argument for the existence of God actually um, requires, it's about causes. It's about, co- you know, can, if something something should be either logically necessary, in which case it's eternal, or it's not logically necessary, in which case it has a cause. And there's, once you, essentially, you're, you're fitting into Leibniz's view and saying, well, there is something that's logically necessary and is eternal, and it is the inflationary cosmos. So it's, very, it's a very interesting time, I think, in physics. I, I emphasize that this is not... It's cutting edge. And so we, we, there's no definitive statement to make other than inflation probably happened. It looks like that's correct.
1: Brian, right, I think one of the really interesting things about um, looking at the history of science and looking at the history of ideas changing over time, because that's obviously what happens with science, is that um, humans have become more and more insignificant, um, that we've been knocked off one pedestal after another um, and that, that perhaps one of those pedestals was imagining ourselves at the centre of a, of a universe and at the centre of the, the solar system, certainly. Mm.
2: Yeah, um, and it was... It's very recent, if you think about it. I mean, I mentioned Bruno there, so we really are talking about... 1600, just before people, you know, Copernicus, uh, remarkable Copernicus actually, talked about, you know, the, the earth spinning on its axis and the precession of the equinoxes, all those things Copernicus seemed to come up with. It's unclear how he managed it actually. But that's what's 15, you know, so, so certainly before 1500, you don't really have much of a debate. The, the Greeks debated it to some extent. But so, so I, the first thing to say this, 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 what I called in the human universe the ascent into insignificance—it's tremendous intellectual ascent—the fact that we've measured our place in, in space and time now. Mm. So we don't, we're no longer at the centre of the universe, but the intellectual climb necessary to demote ourselves was stunning. <laughs> actually, um, and, and actually. This is the thing that I wrestled with most in the human universe, actually, and certainly in, in the book, where you have much more time. It, it, I think humans are valuable. I just feel that they're valuable. It's an unscientific thing to say, in a way, but it feels like we're... Surely, we, we are remarkable things. And how to square that with this this potentially infinite universe and the potential, not only the... the as you said, that the contingency of our existence and individual existence and the existence as a, as a species. But the, the, this potential idea that it switches around in an infinite universe into an inevitability. So we're not even mm. lucky, you know, in that kind <laughs> of universe. We're inevitable. But do I, do I, I mean, I, I'd ask you, for me, very the, the summary of my position is that I think, speaking to a lot of biologists who work in this area, astrobiologists, um, th- they say what you said, which is, they said to, they say to me, and this is my position now, is that simple life must surely be common. It sh- we may well find it on Mars. We've got the dedicated mission called ExoMars to go and look for life on Mars, a European mission, which will launched in 2016 and 2018, I think, in two parts. Uh, life on the moons of Jupiter and, and Saturn, where there's liquid water. Jupiter's moon Europa has more liquid water than all the oceans of Earth combined, We wouldn't be surprised if we found microbes in that ocean. But complex life, and then from complex life to a civilization, um, looks to me to be a potential bottleneck. So it makes us potentially rare. And then I would go further and say, well, if if you use rather more evocative language in these surroundings, you could say, well, what about... This would be a place, one of the few places where there's meaning in the universe. There is meaning in the universe because it means something to me. Obviously, it means something to us here. Um, but if, if intelligent civilizations are rare, then maybe there are very few islands of meaning. So, so I think science is putting us back at the center, paradoxically, in a sense, by, by pointing to our potential rarity. But I, mean, I could ask you just before we take another question. But the, so the idea of a civilization this thing that, by the, by the way, Frank Drake, the astronomer that, who was one of the founding fathers of SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, defines an intelligent civilization as one that can do radio astronomy. <laughs> the, <laughs> reason, the reason the reason is it's an observational <laughs> definition because if you're going to if you're going to detect one then you'll probably have to do it with radio telescopes although we could talk about it. So so what about that an intelligent civilization in the sense it can build radio telescopes? How likely are those?
1: Without putting a number on it, I would say vanishingly small.
2: Yeah, because uh,
1: you know at the end of the day we are if we, if we if we look at our own trajectory and we look at our own evolution um, there are. There are times when you can um, see that humans um, were an endangered species, and that it was actually chance that we got through those bottlenecks. Yeah,
2: there were. The, so, what was the population size in some of these bottlenecks? Well, probably, small, you know, times
1: when when you know we would have said they were an endangered species today because there would have been um, a few thousand of that species.
2: So, literally around. a few thousand humans left.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know that in that case we 're actually <laughs> incredibly lucky to be here and it 's really interesting, I think, philosophically, looking at both sides of this coin and and talking about the inevitability on the one hand, given um, the multiverses um, and then the, and then the vanishingly small chance on the other, um, which Certainly, um, it doesn't make me feel insignificant. It makes me feel extremely lucky to be here. Whether I'm thinking about that in terms of um, the cosmos or actually the chances of my mum and dad meeting each other, um, the yeah, the thing that I get from that is not a feeling of insignificance mm. and uh, and that I don't mean anything, but that actually that I have to create meaning because I'm very lucky to be here. Yeah. Um, so it is. A, yeah, it is a very interesting philosophical question, I think, yeah. and how it makes us feel. Is interesting. John,
2: John Updike once wrote that he said, uh, he said astronomy is, is what we now uh, have instead of theology. It's got less of the terrors but none of the comforts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but looking at the trajectory of evolution, and there are some things which you can say, okay, well, once you had something in place, then other things were um, not necessarily inevitable but, but quite likely. Um, And we can see this happening several times um, in the evolution of life on the planet. So there are some interesting changes um, from reptiles to early mammals. And one of the interesting changes is that um, we find the development of a three-ossicle system in the ear. So reptiles have a single ossicle, a single tiny bone which connects to their eardrum, whereas mammals have three in a chain, which helps to improve their hearing. And we now know, looking at the fossil record, because that seems a, you know, it seems a kind of vanishingly unlikely thing for that to happen, for suddenly two extra ossicles to appear from the reptilian jaw joint. They were stolen from the reptilian jaw joint and sucked inside the ear. And you think, well, gosh, that seems unlikely. But we now know from the fossil record that happened at least four times in different places. So you obviously had um, animals that were kind of almost predisposed um, to go down those, those evolutionary trajectories. So there is constraint there as well. But then there's, you have to balance that with really um, quite kind of random um, happenings, like Chicxulub mm-hmm. slamming into the, into the Earth um, 65 million years ago and finishing off the dinosaurs. And I have absolutely no doubt that if that hadn't happened, if that huge asteroid hadn't slammed into the Yucatan Peninsula... Um, mammals would not have expanded in the way they did mammals would not have diversified in the way that they did after that and if mammals didn't expand and radiate out and diversify you would never have had primates you would never have had monkeys you would never have had apes you would mm-hmm. never have had us
2: yeah and that's just one of the one of the necessary steps in human the emergence of humans isn't it so you've got if you go back you need you need photosynthesis in order to get oxygen into the atmosphere. You need to get the atmosphere oxygenated, which seems to be some sort of geological coincidence as well, doesn't it, once you've got photosynthesis, I think.
1: Yes, yeah, so you, yeah. need, you need life to start off and then start yeah. um, pumping oxygen out. Yeah. Shall we? Yeah. Shall we take some Lucky. more questions? Um, we should take some further at the back, shouldn't we? Not just constant. There's, a, there's somebody okay, waving there. there. <laughs>
2: there's one way There's a big, big hand over there. Well, there's that one, and the then we can go right back to the very back after oh, that okay. one, which is up there. So.
4: Hello. On my way here, I heard on the 6 o'clock news Professor Hawking saying that he was very concerned that he now had a machine which seemed to be able to read his mind. And he felt that evolution was going to come not through the human being, but through machines reproducing themselves, reproducing their power of thought, for want of a better word, far, far quicker than the human being is able to do. And he was, we heard him speaking, and he was very concerned. I'd like to know what your comments are on that.
1: What do you think about that, Brian? What do you think about the idea that, um, I mean, this is a, 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 a we've, we've heard this before this idea that, that other replicators that we create are eventually going to take over and then we'll become truly insignificant.
2: Is it? Is it so, so the first question is um, can you have a conscious, Machine, if you can find some definition of, of a conscious machine. I suspect you can, I would guess. I'd be interested to know what you think. If, if you look at the human brain, it, it, there is a project, I should say, a big multi billion euro project to, to simulate a human brain at the moment. And it's very controversial because some neuroscientists think it, it, it's not going to be possible with our technology with any foreseeable horizon actually so they think it may be a waste of money others think that you should we should try it and so we are trying it if you build a computer that's capable of reproducing the complexity of a a human brain and you can program it with the complexity of the algorithms that we run do you produce a sentient thing do you produce a conscious thing does it think um then you're into sort of Blade Runner territory. Does it have rights? It's interesting, interesting moral questions. I suspect the answer must be yes to those things. I I would guess, I don't know, because I think the human brain has to be what's called a universal Turing machine, after Alan Turing, um, who pointed out that all algorithmic machines are in some sense identical. If our brain doesn't operate according to the laws of physics, then I, I, I don't know... How it operates, I, I think it must operate in in accord with the laws of physics, so therefore I think consciousness must be an emergent property, so therefore, I have to think there can be intelligent machines in principle. I also think there must be it must be possible to build replicators self replicating machines in principle because we are such machines, and again, unless you 're going to Remove us from the from the laws of physics and say that we're not physical structures in the universe. Then then you have to you, then then that would be, I suppose, a, a a religious perspective which I don't share. So I think that we we must be you know a, a property of the universe, structures in the universe described by the laws of physics. So we are such things. That's my point. We are those things, and we're machines. I think. Uh, very complicated ones therefore we could build such machines and so i think he's right to be concerned um if we don't take account of the fact that we could create those things i'm sure we must be able to in principle there are just one more point before i hand over to alice there's the, the, a counter argument a counter argument comes from an unlikely source it 's something called the Fermi paradox. Uh, the Fermi paradox points out is Enrico Fermi, the great physicist in the '50s, pointed this out that given that we 've got two hundred billion stars in our galaxy, and given that the galaxy has been around for pretty much the age of the universe, 13 billion years. There have been plenty of opportunities with so much time in so many worlds for intelligent civilizations to emerge. And yet we don't see any sign at all of their self-replicating machines that if it's possible to build them, they should surely have built. They have had time to build. We don't see them. They're called von Neumann machines. And in human universe, I use this as one of the arguments to suggest that Possibly intelligence is very rare, so possibly there are very few civilizations, but you could argue that it's actually not possible to build self-replicating machines of that complexity. So it's a... What what, what do you think about that?
1: I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think that um, we're already at a point now with um, synthetic biology where um, scientists have have built um, replicating cells, have built entirely synthetic cells... Um, from scratch, so putting them together with the building blocks of life. Um, so they haven't just taken a, an existing cell and, and altered it slightly; they've actually created one from scratch. So, somebody that's done that is Craig Venter, who um, was also working on the, um, on deciphering the, the human genome, and he's called his um, he's called his synthetic life form Cynthia, <laughs> with an S. Um, so we are at the point with synthetic biology now where we, where we can actually build cells um, and that's really interesting we're also at the point obviously where we can um, tinker with existing cells so they start doing other things so their function changes and inserting bits of DNA into them and, and, and things like that But in terms of complex organisms I think we're a very very long way away from it although I think that theoretically just as you say I mean I, I'm, I would say yes that the, we are machines um, we are conscious machines, which is amazing, but I think the con- that consciousness is, a, is an emergent property um, of what is going on um, with the physics and the chemistry um, inside our heads, and that it is incredibly complex. I mean, there are um, scientists trying to trying to map the connections in the human brain, and, you know, first of all, you're talking about 83 billion neurons in the human brain, and then thousands of synapses between um, one neuron and other neurons. So the so the complexity of it is is absolutely mind-boggling. Um, but there are there are scientists doing this. Well, actually, they're working on mice at the moment because they're much easier than than, than humans and and Th- working on very tiny project, cubes. Isn't it?
2: That's part of this human brain project, isn't it? Isn't it an early funding? I think it is that, connected is, it's, yeah, uh, mice, uh, Jeff, Jeff Lichtman,
1: who, um, who invented a way of um, making neurons um, glow in different colours, which he calls Brainbow, um, is also, <laughs> it's also working on this, you know, trying to, trying to look at this really complex architecture of brains um, and, and effectively virtually slicing them up and then reconstructing them in 3D. And, and even that is, you know, testing our, the limits of our computing mm. power at the moment. But it's not always going to test the limits of our computing power. No. Moore's law.
2: Right, that one right at the back there is very, very...
1: (laughs) In the purple light. Keep your hand up until the microphone gets to you. Was it the... No, no, it's
2: right at the back. The the big, the huge hand, it's the only thing I can see. (laughs) And it's it's waving vigorously. (laughs) presumably attached
3: to someone I can't see <laughs> uh, yes. it could
1: be new life it's a real hand
3: <laughs> hello um, two questions uh, you talked about Carl Sagan earlier on a uh, hero of mine as well I have to say and uh, in one of his books he talked about um, any civilization at some point would have to discover the means of its own self-destruction And either you come through that or you don't. And I guess he's obviously talking about um, nuclear weapons. I just wonder if you had a comment about that. Um, Secondly, you're talking about Mars as well. And I think according to uh, NASA data, the average temperature on Mars... Has fluctuated more or less in line with the average temperature on the, on the Earth. So, do you think we should be lobbying the Martians to reduce their carbon emissions? <laughs> the, the,
2: the first question. It, it's often framed in. Um, the, the, there's a phrase called the Great Filter. I think Nick Nick Bostrom and his, his group. Uh, they're at Cambridge, aren't they? I think or the Oxford. Anyway, it's, it's, it's Oxford. They, they, um, they talk about this idea that, let's say that we're trying to find the answer, an explanation for the fact we don't see many intelligent civilizations out there. Then you can say, well, is, is there a filter? Is there something that prevents them from moving beyond this early phase of technological maturity that we find ourselves in now? As you say, maybe it's the discovery of nuclear weapons that, that ultimately wipes out most civilizations. Once you have the means to destroy yourself, as we now do, then you do it. And, of course, we nearly did it. Cuban Missile Crisis being a good example, and there are probably many others that we don't know about, uh, nuclear accidents and things. So so the question is, is the filter, if there is such a filter, if we want to explain why we don't see any civilizations, is the filter in our future or our past? If it's in the past, then we're probably talking about biology again, which we... So we're probably saying, well, well, you know, maybe it's the... We could talk about it, perhaps. Perhaps it's the emergence of the eukaryotic cell that we chatted mm. about before we came on stage. So maybe talk about that. Um, yeah. So uh, there's that. We, we don't know, of course. We have avoided destroying ourselves so far. Um, as regards the, the, the climate, um, the, the climate records on Mars are not, not great. The Martians didn't keep really good climate <laughs> records. And, and you're right, we're beginning to try and reconstruct the climatological history, if that's the right word, of Mars. That's what the Curiosity rover's doing now, actually, on Mars. But I think we're in the early stages. So I think if you claim a correlation between Martian climate and, and Earth climate, it's pr- I'm sure that's premature, uh, I think. The, Can I pick the, up
1: on eukaryotic cells? Yeah. So this is a, a, a huge leap um, in... Life on Earth and the and the potential for life on Earth to become complex. Um, Most of life on this Earth, in terms of numbers and in terms, actually, shockingly, of mass as well, is single celled, Um, which I've always found shocking. I think you know, if you added up just all the elephants, I mean, surely that's more than you know that weighs more than all the bacteria on Earth. But no, Um, now that we know that bacteria live very deep in the Earth's crust and at the bottom of the oceans, and actually. You know there are more bacterial cells here sitting on this chair than there are eukaryotic cells. Um, they do outnumber us and outweigh us, um, and they are simple. and And I and I do think that we probably are going to find evidence of that kind of simple life elsewhere. And I'm really really excited about the results from Feely. Whenever we'll hear about those, because um, we know that Feely, although although she probably, shut down um, very soon after landing because she managed to get in the shadow of a cliff. Um, We we have had data sent back from the samples that she managed to collect before her batteries ran out. And I'm desperate to know what what that is, um, what that data tells us. Um, The jump to eukaryotic life is really fascinating because actually um, one of the things which interests me and, and really kind of runs as a theme through my book is the the kind of parallel trajectories, or at least the, um, the shared meaning between the evolution of life on this planet and embryological development um, in lots of different ways, actually. I mean, one of the um, things I say to people who, who, who have problems with the idea that life evolved on this planet from single-celled organisms, that they themselves could have evolved somehow from a single-celled organism many, many, many generations ago, I say to them, well, look, you have, have developed... From a single cell. You've done it. Um, In the course of your own lifetime, you started off as a single cell. And now you are this um, large collection um, of billions of cells and hundreds of different cell types. Um, But, you know, you've you've done that, starting off with that apparent simplicity. So there's there's that kind of, I suppose, philosophical... um, comparison to be made between evolution and embryology. Um, but there are also some really, really important, um, uh, very, very practical comparisons to make as well. So, so the evolution of eukaryote cells, um, which basically paved the way for the development of multicellular organisms, of which we are all one, um, depended on being able to take a genetic code and interpret it in different ways. Um, to take one genetic code and interpret it so that you could create different cell types from the same genetic code. Because that's what you've done. You've started off with one genetic code. um, Half of your DNA from your mum, half of your DNA from your dad. And that's the same genetic code in every single cell in your body apart from a few which have accumulated maybe a mutation here and there, but essentially the same genetic code. And yet some of those cells are liver cells, and some of them are nerve cells, and some of them are producing hair, and some of them are um, producing insulin. I mean, there's a remarkable diversity of cells just from that, that one cell with that, with that, with that one um, genetic code in it. And prokaryotes have never been able to do that. So understanding how eukaryotes did that How does a eukaryotic cell take that genetic code and interpret it in different ways? Understanding that gives us the key to understanding in evolutionary terms how you get from prokaryotic life to eukaryotic life. But it also underpins the the whole of embryological development and and how our our genetic code actually um, allows the body to differentiate and all these different cell types to appear and build a body.
2: And then there are several um, ideas of how the eukaryotes got that ability or came into existence there's one is the fateful encounter hypothesis which i think you mentioned to me you don't necessarily agree with but this idea where you get a you get a it's called endosymbiosis where you get one cell inside another and that was the origin of mitochondria which are the power stations of the cell which are bacterial in origin i think everyone Mm, agrees with that mm. but that was the 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 foundation upon which the eukaryote developed but that's one theory isn't it that, that
1: yeah, it is. Um, I, um, and, and I and I and it is. Yeah, it's one theory that, that that a lot of people would have as their favourite theory. Um, and, and and I and I um, certainly accept that mitochondria and chloroplasts as well in plant cells are. Um, or were originally um, smaller cells which were engulfed by another cell, you would have thought that normally in that situation the larger cell would eat the smaller one, um, devour it and use all the bits inside it to build more of its own cellular body. Um, But somehow, somehow... This little cell got engulfed um, and ended up inside this larger cell. The, the reason we think that is that we can actually um, we can actually look at the structure of, uh, of mitochondria, these little packages inside our cells, which are essentially the, the power stations inside our cells which convert um, energy into a form that we can use it in. Um, uh, we can look at them and we can see that actually they, they do look like tiny little bacteria in a way they look like um, they have a little membrane around them in fact they have a folded membrane on the inside and they have their own DNA as well so they have a little loop of DNA um, which you only inherit from your mother because you don't get any of your father's mitochondrial DNA because your father just contributed his his, genome, his, um, his nuclear DNA to you um, it, everything else came from the egg which contained your mother's mitochondria so you can, trace, you can look at the DNA, just the DNA inside the mitochondria, and trace a line back um, through your maternal lineage, going through, to, through your mother to your mother's mother to your mother's mother to your mother's mother. If you do that for everybody on Earth, you end up with a common ancestor 200,000 years ago, um, who some people call mitochondrial Eve. Um, I think it's an unfortunate term because it suggests there was just one woman around at the time <laughs> and there was there was probably an Adam at the same time, which we, which we know wasn't the case. Um, but we do have a common ancestor um, tracing back all our um, mitochondrial lines. Anyway, so that's what mitochondria are and, um, and, and how they can help to reveal some of our own evolution. Um, but in terms of whether they are the necessary step in going from prokaryotes to eukaryotes, Um, they certainly would have made um, more energy available to that eukaryotic cell. But I think that potentially there's something more interesting going on. And at the University of Birmingham, I've got a colleague called Brian Turner who has spent his um, research career looking at this, um, what I thought actually was quite a boring um, protein (laughs) um, called crematin. And when I was at medical school, crematin was simply packaging. It was simply what you did with your DNA in order to package it up and stick it inside a nucleus. And it turns out that chromatin is a lot more than that. Chromatin is, um, is associated with, with DNA in such a way that it can, it can hold onto it very tightly or it can release its grip. And if it holds onto it very tightly, it means that that DNA isn't available Um, for being transcribed. In other words, it's not available for being read and turned into proteins. If it releases its grip, um, then a bit of DNA can be turned into a protein. So it's the chromatin that essentially determines um, which genes in a genome are going to be read and which ones are going to be silenced. And that's the way that you take a genetic code um, and you make it um, turn one particular cell into a nerve cell, one cell into a liver cell, one cell into a um, pancreatic cell, one cell into an eye cell, you do it by silencing um, particular genes, and you do that through chromatin and through the chemical modifications to chromatin. Prokaryotic cells do have proteins which attach to DNA, but, but not in the same way. So, so I think, I agree with Brian, that Brian Turner, that, um, that it's the chromatin that is the fundamental thing the fundamental kind of breakthrough. And we can, this is always with, the, with, with um, hindsight, of course, because at the time, you know, that cell had no idea what it was doing. Um, there was a different sort of protein came along and suddenly the world was its oyster. So, so that's the, the mechanism by
2: which a cell... Cells can specialise, essentially. That's, and prokaryotes yeah. don't specialise... Yeah remain well, single-celled um, things yeah,
1: okay so they do.
2: there's always exceptions in biology. Oh,
1: there are exceptions and sometimes you can get prokaryotes growing in kind of interesting mats where actually um, the concentrations of chemicals are different across the mat and you will get different phenotypes kind of popping up hmm. um, but they're thought to be transient and what you need to build a body like ours um, is permanent changes you don't want your nerve cell suddenly going, I'm going to turn into a bone cell. No. Um, you've got to fix it. You've got to tell it what to become, and it's got to stay like it.
4: Mm. Right.
2: Where are we going? We have to go that way, don't we? We do. Yeah. So someone's actually got the from trouble of standing up. Oh, no, that, that, because that's the person with the microphone. <laughs> so well, Go gone then. <laughs> Hi. Um,
3: then
4: welcome, back. Brian. In Human Universe, you touch on a number of areas of science. There's cosmology, uh, evolutionary biology, physics, and Darwin famously draw inspiration from Malthus and geology. When you look at science these days, there's so much specialisation. People become expert in a certain field. They can devote their whole career to
2: being expert in one area. Um, my question is, how much sharing is there across
3: disciplines and specialisms? Um, and how much do you think we're, we're missing out? We're losing... Uh, what we could be gaining from the, the body of knowledge we have because of lack of sharing.
2: It's a very um, hot topic in universities, actually, this. We, it's, the, the, the great advances now, I think, are interdisciplinary. I mean, you, our, our colleague uh, Jim Al-Khalili has just written a book uh, surveying the field of quantum biology, which is a, a completely in a new field, where, where physicists and biologists are getting together and molecular biologists and, and chemists trying to understand how photosynthesis works, for example, which seems to be an area that you need that collaboration. There could well be quantum mechanical effects, that, large-scale quantum mechanical effects that, that, that are important in understanding how um, chlorophyll works, for example, and how photosynthesis works in particular. So... so. Um, the, the, I think it's a very good question. I should say the, um, the Crick Institute, which uh, Sir Paul Nurse is, is, is overseeing now. has been built at King's Cross in London. Um, that is a, a an example of this new paradigm where you try and mix people up from different disciplines. In, in that case, it's a, it's a cancer research institute. But the idea is that you have mathematicians and physicists and biologists, and they force them by the architecture of the institute to interact. And this is Paul's great, um, great idea. This is what he wanted to do. And the way you force them to do it, if you know scientists, is you make them walk past each other on the way to the coffee area. (laughs) So you, you design coffee areas that are communal. And also I think they've done it with the toilets, because they know there are certain things you have to do <laughs> to, to get to, in your working day. But the idea of the architecture is to do just what you said and mi- mix it up. This
1: is utterly fascinating, because it's treating people um, like the, the molecules in these deep-sea vents and the little test tubes, and it's kind of putting them all in and, and sort of mixing them up and mm. injecting a little bit of heat in yeah. and then seeing what's going to come out of it. Yeah.
2: I, just, I think it's... A, I mean, we, we try it now at, at Manchester, a lot, of, a lot of it is down to architecture, actually, the architecture in universities. So the, trying to not have the physicists stay in the physics department and the, and the biologists stay in, the, in life sciences. We're really thinking about that now. Um,
1: because I think so traditionally relevant. we've um, been very good in universities at um, dividing people up and um, making sure that it's all very parochial um, and that people in different departments never speak to each other. Um, and and one of the certainly when I was just starting out as an academic, one of the um, really kind of inspirational things that I did was to do the university's teaching and learning course, and it wasn't really about the course itself; it was about all the people I got to meet on it. Because suddenly I wasn't just meeting anatomists, um, I wasn't just meeting um, life sciences people. I was meeting people from, oh, um, earth sciences, and you know perhaps even um, physics, you know, and mathematicians, and um, social scientists, and musicians. You know, it was amazing to suddenly um, be kind of thrown into those conversations with people, um, and it did. You know, uh, the coffee breaks were fantastic. I could make
2: one. There's a slightly political point I could make, actually. Never shy away from the opportunity to make a slightly political point. One of the problems we have in academia, I think... I'd be interested to know what Alice thinks about this. But if you look at the way that we're funded now, then there's a great emphasis on on uh, measures of productivity, such as numbers of citations, numbers of papers published in particular journals... Um, So there's there's, there's a career structure almost, a professional career structure imposed by the funding system um, because it wants to measure. The the government likes to measure. They like data, and that's not bad in certain circumstances but measurement affects behaviour academics are clever and they game systems and one of the, way they game, the ways they game the funding system is obviously to try and get more funding um, I don't think the funding system though is, is structured in such a way that it knows what kind of behaviour it wants to engender, it doesn't seem to me to engender or, or encourage the kind of behaviour that you suggest and, and I agree it is, it is good behaviour in academia which is is to to, to wander around and, and and wander through knowledge and go into talk of colleagues and and maybe find other areas of research because it takes a while you know, if i wanna, you know if, if i cared now i, I don't care. i've got to a point in my career where i don't really have to care about the number of publications that i Put out, but you know, I'm, I'm I'm a professor. I don't. There's a great famous uh, um, Steve Jones always famously said, "There's some worm, isn't there? That sw- he swims around the in sea the, o- sea it's the sea squirt. Sea squirt. sea squirt. It swims yeah. around in the ocean, and and it has it has eyes and, and a brain. It swims around, and then it finds a rock. It take. It gets tenure on a rock and then absorbs its own brain, <laughs> because it no longer has to move. And he says in this way, it's similar to professors. That's what they do. <laughs> and, uh, so, but if you think about the, the people who are really doing the research, the postdocs. What's the best way? The the, the easiest way and the most effective way of getting loads of publications is to specialise and go right down one line and say, right, this is what I'm going to do. My career depends on this stuff. My promotion depends on it. My salary depends on it. So that's what I'm going to do. And that's the way that we're, we're we're starting to see universities and the production of knowledge is some kind of production line that churns out, as I often say, cannon fodder for the knowledge economy. Right? That's not what ins- Universities aren't that. They should be the places where people can... We could say, well, we're, we're both interested in this stuff. Let's, let's, let's collaborate. It might take us a couple of years, because I've got to teach you about physics, and you've got to teach oh. me about biology, but somewhere <laughs> along the line, something interesting might come. But, but the way that academia is structured, I think, can mitigate against that. And that's the genius of the, of, of the Crick Institute. That, that certainly people like Paul Nurse recognise this and think, well, let's try and do something about this. Let's give people freedom. We, we, we can't afford not to have people in our society who have freedom to think. It's, a very, it, it's, a very, it's a, the foundation of our society, I think. And that's the end of my political
4: rant. I
1: think it's becoming... <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, uh, I don't know whether it's just the fact that um, we're getting older... Um, but I, I think that academic freedom is being eroded. Um, and I think that there's less academic freedom now um, for academics generally than there was 10, 20 years ago. At least that's, that's how it feels. I think
2: undoubtedly true.
1: And it's really that. interesting talking to people like Paul Nurse, who is a Nobel Prize winner um, and the president of the Royal Society, and talking to him about his experiences um, in research leading up to... Um, his discovery of the proteins which regulate the cell cycle, which is what um, he won the Nobel Prize for. And one of the things he said to me was that um, they weren't scrutinized and that he and his um, fellow scientists were working actually in an area of biology that nobody was very interested in. (laughs) Um, And that was... How they were able to be creative hmm. um, and how they were able to be, to be bold and to you know, make these great, great strides and um, make these incredible discoveries um, was the fact that they, they weren't being scrutinized and they weren't being um, constantly judged for the number of papers that they were producing hmm. every year.
2: Yeah, no, another example is one of my, my colleagues at Manchester, two colleagues, Andrei Geim and Kostya Novoselov, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics uh, a few years ago now for discovering graphene, which is uh, already a multi-billion dollar industry. We've got a new £50 million graphene institute in Manchester, which is aiming to, to bring industry and physics together. So it's exactly what the government wants, um, rightly, to, to encourage, and, and actually doing a good job by putting money into these, these areas. Um, but what's interesting is you speak to Andre Geim in particular about his, the process he went through to, to isolate graphene, which is this two-dimensional form of carbon. It's one of the strongest materials known, one, a great conductor of electricity. You can build semiconductors out of it. That, are more, uh, that, that, that can be faster transistors that can be faster than anything you can build out of silicon in principle. You build one atom thick displays with it. You could build aircraft out of it that could fly across the Atlantic and the fuel would weigh more than the aircraft incredible stuff. He discovered it by, frankly, pissing about with, um, (laughs) which he says in his Nobel lecture, he had these Friday afternoons when he played around, and he's a famous player. He's the only man in history, the only scientist in history ever to have won the Ig Nobel Prize and the Nobel Prize. He won the Ig Nobel Prize for levitating live frogs to see what happened, (laughs) basically. um, That's what he's like. But But he said in his Nobel one of the interviews when he got his Nobel Prize for this revolutionary material that might revolutionize the 21st century um he uh, was asked why he hadn't gone to Harvard or Stanford why did he go to Manchester uh, and he said well the, uh, in Manchester the, the university set up to it allowed me to play he said it allowed me to to um to to follow these these ideas that I and, and I think it's really important and he always emphasises that and we have to listen to the, the great scientists of which he's won who won a Nobel Prize play at freedom. That, that's, that, that pays benefits.
1: Well, again, this plays into um, similarities between, I suppose, human culture and, uh, and evolution and um, the fact that what we're basically seeing in, in evolution and the, the history of life on the planet is, is playing,
0: mm. is,
1: is organisms um, coming up with lots of different solutions and exploring the world of possible solutions, and sometimes they will get it wrong. I mean we, we know that and um, and those then lead to dead ends, but sometimes they get it spectacularly right um, and, and, and but you can 't predict that 's the interesting thing about it mm. I think is that you can 't predict when you're, when you 're going to make those spectacularly right steps and and also they are incremental and I think that Quite often in science we get so tied up with um, talking about breakthroughs and talking about particular individuals who are geniuses and you know, without them we wouldn't have driven the science forward. And, and we kind of lose the bigger picture, which is that it, it is incremental. There are all these little steps. And many, many of them are going to be dead ends. But some of them are going to go through. Um, and, and flourish and, and become really kind of, um, you know, bright um, and, and incandescent areas of science of the yeah. future. But how to predict those is well, really can't. difficult.
2: You can't, <laughs> you just gotta let people play. Um, we, we should go that way, shouldn't we, somewhere?
1: We've,
4: we haven't yeah, been that way people yet. People
1: under the bright lights. There is a hmm. hand up right in the corner. Hi, I'm um,
4: so honored to be here and see both of you on stage today just want to go back to talking of humanity being removed from the stage. Uh, am I right in understanding that the center of universe is everywhere? And yeah. if so, doesn't that mean that we are at the center of universe, as is everything else? <laughs> and if so, isn't that the most beautiful thing?
2: Yes. Uh, I, I agree. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the just expand very quickly. The, the, the Big Bang, People, I, I got asked a lot, actually, where did the Big Bang happen? Was it over there? And the answer, as you said, is it, it happened everywhere. All, all space was, was present at that time when the universe was hot and dense, and it's expanded and cooled ever since, but it was all there. So, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful way of thinking about it, actually. We are. We are at the centre. I'm, I'm, I'm not reading text messages. I was asked to just check the time. <laughs> so I'm not just going on my phone now and going, no, no, no. no. <laughs> I didn't have a watch.
1: No, I think interestingly, um, and it is—it is a different, um, it's a different perspective. But for me, the um, the idea of humans just being this tiny twig on a tree of life, which again could be seen as being um, um, the rise to insignificance, and the you know we 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 are not the. Um, we're not the pinnacle of evolution anymore. We're not the tr- we're not the um, the end point of evolution. We're not where it's all been heading um, for um, the last few hundred million years at all. Um, we are a little twig on the tree of life. Um, again, to me, that um, is a is a really um, comforting thought. Actually, um, that we are we're part of the great tree of life on the planet, um, and also that we are. Um, we're part of nature and not separate from it. Because I think there's a great, there's a great tradition in Western thought, um, religious and otherwise, actually, of really separating humans out um, and saying humans are over here and nature with a capital N is somewhere over there. It's not Brian, but it's somewhere over there. Um, and, and, and what our modern view of biology and our modern view of evolution says is, no, you know, it's not... Nature's everywhere. This is nature, too just as much as the, the trees and the flowers and the birds, we are part of nature in the same way, perhaps, that we're at the origin of the of the Big Bang.
2: Yeah, I should say, interestingly, though, um, one of the criticisms of the um, human universe was that it was sort of a exhibited human exceptionalism, which it does. Um, it, is, it is a celebration of humanity. Um, absolutely not. I, I, it was absolutely not... As you say, it meant to say that we're some kind of the pinnacle of evil. That's a different thing to say. Um, although someone wrote an article in the Guardian misunderstanding it, well, that's the function of the Guardian, isn't it? <laughs> and, so, Watch it uh, I'm right for the observe. <laughs> um, but but uh, the, so, so you, the, there is a distinction to be made, of course, isn't there, between saying that we're somehow the pinnacle of evolution—the idea that evolution's some great ascent, the ascent of man. You know, mm. it's not. It's, that's, I agree with you completely. But but the, the statement that there is something special about us because we build civilizations. I think is, is an appropriate, I think is an appropriate statement to make. And something that we often miss, I think we, we're in danger of devaluing ourselves because we misunderstand the statement that you just made, which is clearly correct, that there's no march towards complexity in biology. There's no ascent. Although I think, doesn't Richard Dawkins often... There are some people who claim that given time... You, I mean, it's, it's obviously true, actually, that given many billions of years, it's more likely you'll get something complicated. I suppose that's a statistical statement, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. And you know, if you if you look at the kind of drunkard's walk thing, then you're, you're more likely to get complex things emerging. Um, and um, especially as if you start off with simple life, you can't get any simpler so actually if you're going to diversify yeah. that's the only like, we'll way you can go yeah. <laughs> yeah, is, to, is to get more complex um, whether or not um, consciousness in the way that we understand consciousness is an inevitable outcome of that um, I don't really know because, because again that depends on um, so much there's so much contingency involved in, in actually what what led to that Um, we can we can look at some patterns we can certainly say well um amongst mammals um the mammals with larger brains tend to be the ones that are more sociable Um, so you know if you've got a diversification of uh, of animals like mammals you would imagine that some would be more sociable than others and therefore would have bigger brains and and perhaps with those bigger brains comes along the kind of consciousness that we're familiar with um, in fact, one of, the one of I think, the best theories about the development of our brains is um, dependent on that, is dependent on our sociability um, and the fact that the reason we have big brains is actually not what each of us as an individual can do with our big brains, but what happens when you put lots of these big brains together um, and, and we can create amazing things. We're actually, um, one of the reasons that I'm, I suppose, quite optimistic about the future of humankind and i and i don't know whether we've gone through that um that that potential cutoff where we could have wiped ourselves off the planet we we still could wipe ourselves off the planet Um, but one of the reasons why i am cautiously optimistic is that um the the history of um of humanity on the planet is that we are getting less violent and although the media um perhaps makes us feel the opposite of that Um, we know, if we look at it objectively, that 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 is true. And we also realise that actually one of the defining things about us as a species is our tendency to cooperate um, in a way, actually, that that other apes just don't do. I mean, orangs don't do it because they're very solitary. Um, uh, Gorillas um, don't do it to the extent that we do. Chimpanzees, if you had this many chimpanzees in a room they would have you know the fighting by now would have been extreme and you're all sitting there really you know happy probably sitting next to strangers some of you um that you've never met before and yet you're quite happy to sit in close proximity to them that wouldn't happen if you were chimpanzees
2: mm. i think we've got time for a couple more questions i'm just checking my
1: yeah we've got about we've got about eight minutes in principle
2: um, we better have some more questions then this is the end of the. They said to me before this, they said, right, so, so after that first bit, then move on to the next bit. So we're now moving on to <laughs> the, moving the next section. Yeah. <laughs> after the first bit's finished.
1: There's a, there's a gentleman in a white got, yeah, shirt no, no, no. over there. He's had his hand up oh, for right the Oh, is over edge. there? Yeah, right that at the edge Sort right
3: of emerging. I know,
1: yeah. It. I spotted him there when I held my hand up before.
3: Hello. Um, a bit of a broad question,
4: but you mentioned quantum biology and also quantum physics. What do you think the future is that what is of that?
2: Um, the future of quantum biology. I mean, it's. <laughs> I mean, it's a very young field, as I as I understand it. One of the, the great one of the great questions, particularly with regard to photosynthesis, is why it's so efficient. And the the, the suggestion is from the quantum biologists is that something called Essentially, quantum computing happens, so many different routes are taken simultaneously of the of the electrons if you like through this this molecular machinery. Many different routes are taken, and the the most efficient one is the one that manifests itself essentially and that 's the way you build a quantum computer you do You do many things in parallel essentially um, so so, so what, what the quantum biologists would say, if you want a, if you talk about applications, then the, it, to, if, if you could build solar cells with the efficiency of photosynthesis, you wouldn't have an energy problem on, on this planet. And you could find some way of storing the energy and moving it around. But it, it, it's incredibly efficient. So, so if you can understand the biology, you can do better engineering. So that would be one... One application of quantum biology. The future of quantum mechanics, just very briefly, there's still a, a huge debate. There's no debate that quantum mechanics works. It's our best theory of, of. The only piece of physics, of fundamental physics, that isn't quantum is Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is our explanation of gravity, which is 100 years old next year. Apart from that, it's all quantum, it works, um, but the interpretation of it is still up for grabs. Um, so, so there's a great deal of the almost. Philosophical aspects of quantum theory, actually, about understanding what it really means—is is there really, are there really an infinite number of universes in a different sense to the infinite number we spoke about earlier, where everything happens it's a so-called quantum multiverse—but we can. We've only got five minutes left. So, uh, what about right, you? There, is
1: a, there are some things in science which we are um, quite uncertain of, and we come up with hypotheses to describe things, and, se- and, and quite often several competing hypotheses um, or models um, to describe things. Um, when it comes to quantum physics, I mean, could you, see, could you foresee anything that would, um, that would essentially replace that as a, as a model? Is there, or do you think what we're just going to see is refinements of that model?
2: It's a it's a good question. I mean, it's it's actually a very it's a simple theory. Um, At its heart, it's all that there is in quantum theory is, is a statement of what happens to. This is my interpretation. What happens to particles? But how do particles move around? And that's myself and my colleague Jeff Forshaw, at Manchester, I write books with and he's a theoretical physicist, works in this area. He likes to emphasise this and I think he's right, particles are particles. So the only question in physics is what we call the dynamics of a particle. If I put a particle there, what's it going to do? And in, in Newtonian physics... Uh, A particle stays in a state of rest or uniform motion in a straight line unless acted upon by a force. That's the law, the dynamical law, essentially. Then you have F F equals ma that tells you what happens when you apply a force to it. Um, In quantum theory, there's a different rule, which says that if you put a particle at a point, then what is is it going to do? Well, at the next instant, it's equally likely to be anywhere in the universe in what's called non-relativistic quantum mechanics. and There's a slight modification, but not as much as you'd think when you put relativity in It's still going to hop crazily around. Um, There's a probability it'll hop around. What's interesting about quantum theory though, so it tells you the rule to calculate that. So I put something there, what's the probability it's going to be over here? There's a rule that tells you how to do it, and it's using something called the action. So you just work it out. If you put a particle in a region, what you find is that it's less likely to hop because of so-called interference effects. And and the, the, the world that we're familiar with emerges from that rule. But it, I, the only thing I want to emphasize there is that the ju- it's just a replacement of New- Newton's laws with a different rule. And th- that's all. And, and all the so-called strangeness emerges from two things. One is it's a bit of an odd rule. Uh, particles don't stay where you put them, um, although they do, broadly speaking, when you allow them to... When you have big ensembles of them. And um, secondly... I I said probability there. So the the key thing that stunned people 100 years ago, people like Rutherford and and Niels Bohr and Einstein when they were thinking about these things, is that the the theory is probabilistic. So it tells you what's the probability I'll find something over there. That came from things like radioactivity. If you go back 100 years, people were looking at radioactive decay and they saw that things have a half-life. So what you can do with a nuclear, Marie Curie and people like that are looking at nuclei and saying, well, in in 10 minutes, half of this radon gas or whatever the half-life is has decayed away. But for an individual nucleus, you can't predict when it's going to decay. You can only predict statistically when, if you had 100 of them, I know when there's on the average, there'll be 50 left. And that's the really strange bit of quantum theory, I think, that nature behaves in a probabilistic way at a subatomic level. Well, and so actually at all levels, it behaves in a probabilistic way. And the probabilities are just hidden from us because we are large in ensembles of particles and in, in big distances, basically, that, that we exist in.
1: It is interesting because so. I, I, I'm a great fan of T.H. Huxley, who was Darwin's bulldog. And T.H. Huxley described um, science as an extension of common sense, um, as a, an, an extension of the kind of rational way that we approach the world around us. And, um, and I'm with him on that. But what we find by doing that is sometimes extremely odd and, it, and then doesn't seem like common sense at all.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think I said in Human Universe, it was scientists remove the adult affliction of common sense from their minds. And, and in order to observe nature. Because you're right, you can't have, I think the point is, you can't have prejudice. So if your common sense is something of I have a prejudice about how nature works, you tend to be tripped up, don't you? I think we've got, for example, one more question. Oh, I'm question. at this thing. Yeah, go. we've got one minute. <gasps> That's oh, go on, then someone in
3: the, middle,
1: there. Voice in the middle. Right. To finish off with.
4: So um, if science could only be done by men or women for the next hundred years, what would you choose and why?
2: Well, you, you mean, did your question mean that if, if you said only men or only women could do science? See, we said actually before we came on that the suggestion was, um, why don't you ask yourself the final question? And I said, yeah, it's always the case that the last question is the mad one. <laughs> not, not mad in the sense that it's a good question, isn't it? But I mean, it's the difficult one. Uh, Alice.
1: Um, I, think to
0: be...
1: <laughs> um, I think to be fair, historically, and to redress the balance, then there is only one answer to that, and it would just be women.
2: <laughs> well, it's I mean, but... this is the serious point, I did, which is that we, we miss... The, the, so there's obviously it's clear that there's no, that there's no predisposition to science of the sexes, you know, you, you have a, a, t- a pool of talent and we need more scientists and engineers in the economy, and we're missing out on a whole swathe of talent, so even if you don't impose any Uh, moral um, position that you think, well, it should be 50-50 for moral reasons. If you put that aside, it would be 50-50 for for talent reasons. And so we're missing a whole pool of talent. So so the reason it has to be 50-50 is because that's the way that you access the best scientists.
1: I think that sounds fair.
2: So, um, I think that's the. the, the yeah.
1: If extremely unlikely, unfortunately.
2: Well, it's getting I mean, in biology now, I think the gender balance is reasonably, it's reasonably balanced, isn't it? So it I mean, is. Life it sciences. is.
1: And um, I think speaking to um, engineers, um, about the, the dreadful paucity of, uh, of women in um, professional engineering. 7% of professional engineers in this country yeah. are women. Um, we should be looking at what happened in biology and in medicine um, and learning from that um, because we know from those experiments that it is possible to change. Um, And and just as Brian said, um, there's obviously a a moral imperative to do so if you believe in the equality of the sexes, but actually there's a a much more, um, I suppose, uh, less altruistic (laughs) um, uh, reason for doing so as well, which is that if you want to have the brightest minds involved in tackling these questions, then it's got to be 50-50.
2: OK, well, I think that's uh, we, we've now run out of time. Can, can I just say thank you? You're absolutely wonderful questions, and I, I've found it extremely enjoyable this evening. So, so thank you, and, and thank you, Alice. It's thank you, Brian. Thank, you thank you, everybody.
0: Thank you for listening.
1: You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencequared.com.
0: Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.